0: <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind. The best love programs from radio's golden age. Only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor.
1: Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we hear a story that was featured twice on radio, Dr. Grimshaw's Sanitarium. It was written by... Fletcher Pratt, an American writer of history, science fiction, and fantasy. Guy had an interesting life. He was not without his problems, though. Following high school, he attended Hobart College in Geneva, New York, for one year. In February of 1916, the Associated Press reported he'd been arrested for burglary in Geneva after a series of midnight cash drawer robberies that allegedly netted him less than $25. He was reported to have told police that his father didn't supply him enough funds to survive at Hobart. And the Buffalo Inquirer reported Pratt's father came on from Springfield yesterday and it was practically decided to send the youth to the state hospital for the insane at Willard, pending an investigation of his case by the grand jury. It was thought that he may be me mentally unsolved. Well, he survived all of that. And when a fire gutted his apartment in the early 1930s, He used the insurance money to study at the Sorbonne for a year. After his return from France, he was a staff writer for American Detective, a true crime magazine, and began writing histories. His short history of the Civil War, Ordeal by Fire, was published to critical acclaim in 1935 and became a bestseller. And I found this part rather fascinating. Following World War II the Pratts came into possession of a rambling 31-room Victorian mansion overlooking the Atlantic Ocean at Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, purchased by Pratt's wealthy mother for use as a summer place. whimsically dubbed the Ipsy Whipsy Institute. <laughs> the house became a watering hole for Fletcher's literary friends and an unending succession of marathon weekend house parties. And now let's turn to the story of Dr. Grimshaw's a sanitarium That was adapted for radio by George LaFertz and adapted from the original story. Here it is, Dr. Grimshaw's Sanitarium.
2: Adventures in time and space, told in future tense. The What you will hear transcribed in the next half hour represents either a magnificent hoax or the true explanation of the famous Grimshaw Sanatorium scandal, which made the headlines back in 1947. The manuscript upon which this account is based was removed by the New York State Police from a fountain pen cover found in the doorway to Dr. Grimshaw's study. We offer this manuscript as evidence only. Whether it is authentic or not, you must judge for yourself.
3: I'm a graduate of Hamilton College, class of 34 Member of Theta Alpha I'm one of those fools who wanted some excitement in life So instead of going into my father's shoe business I became a private detective These are facts You can check them if you like The rest of what I write here is so fantastic That I don't expect it to be believed If anyone should find this manuscript and read it All I ask is that you notify Miss Millicent Armbruster of 299 Wallace Avenue, Buffalo that Johnny Doherty is dead. On the evening of July 1st, Miss Armbruster and I were driving to a wedding. Not our own, though I wish it had been. It was Sunday, and in order to avoid traffic, I took the old mill road, single-lane dirt affair that runs past the Gowanda Cemetery.
4: Aren't you going too fast?
3: Uh-huh, not for this road. There isn't a thing around except some tombstones. Johnny,
4: there's the gate to the cemetery. What about? That hearse. I don't see hey any. Johnny, look out! Hey. Look out! Hey.
3: Ah! It was a big black hearse with no lights on, pulling out of the cemetery. Lucky I had good brakes. We skidded for about 20 feet and slammed into the back of the hearse. The two rear doors buckled and snapped open. It was a freak huge oak coffin with brass handles tipped up and began slowly to slide back towards.
5: Oh, Johnny, look. The, the coffin, it's sliding out. Holy man. Oh, how oh, horrible.
3: You, you stay right here, honey. I, oh. I'll help the driver with that thing. Hey, you okay, Mac? You don't pay much attention to speed limits, do you, Jack? Now, look, let's not get hung up on who was right and who was wrong. I was going too fast, and you were traveling without lights after dark. Main thing is, nobody's hurt and no damage done, except for that coffin. And I don't suppose the occupant minds too much. Let's see the driver's license and registration. Right here. Hmm. John Doherty. Oh, a private eye, huh? You listen to the radio too much, Junior. Now, if you don't mind, who does this joy wagon belong to? Go on to funeral service. It's being rented to Grimshaw. Who? Grimshaw, from the private sanatorium. Do you mind if I ask what you were doing after dark, coming out of a cemetery with a wooden kimono? We're moving one of Grimshaw's patients to a new grave. Uh-huh. Do they always travel like this? Now, look, Hawkshaw, how about skipping the third degree and giving me a hand getting the box back in the wagon, huh? A pleasure. Better screw on the cover again. It's going to slide off. Well, let's get it in the hearse first. Okay, Junior. You get on that end. Ready? Live. Lift. Uh. Just slide it. Brother, who's in there, King Kong? Look out for the cover. Hey. Oh, I, I told you that it happened. Hey, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, Junior? Why don't you ask him? Real wise guy, huh? I've got half of mine to report this accident. Uh, go ahead. See what gets you. Grimshaw's got a lot of influence around here, mister A lot of influence Now, if you'll pardon me, I'll deliver the body So long, Junior
6: Johnny? Johnny? Coming, honey Everything all right, Johnny?
3: I thought so until a few seconds ago Uh, Listen, baby Can you sit here in the car for another five minutes?
6: We're due at the wedding in half an hour I won't be long Where are you
3: going? For a stroll through the cemetery
4: Oh, hey, Johnny, stop making jokes
3: Honey, when we lifted that coffin back on a meat wagon I got a good look inside of it Oh Exactly how I felt I figured we'd knock the stuffing out of the corpse I mean, I didn't expect the stuffing to be sand What? Yes It wasn't a body It was a dummy stuffed with sand A dummy with a wax face Which brings up an interesting question. Who's supposed to be in that box? And uh, just where is the dead man spending his time? Sometimes in my business, when things drop off, you have to go out and uh, dig up new clients. My next case was a gentleman named Harlan Ward Sr., the wealthy automobile manufacturer. I'd gotten his name off his son's tombstone.
7: Are you trying to tell me, Dorothy, that my son Harlan was never buried at Kuwanda Cemetery?
3: Exactly, Mr. Ward. Why? Maybe if you'll tell me the circumstances surrounding your son's death, I can help answer that.
7: My son was a rather impetuous young man. Tall, good-looking. After his graduation from Princeton, he began drinking quite heavily. After he got into a couple of scrapes, we sent him to Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium in the hope that he could be cured. While my wife and I were in Europe, we received word that he had died. He was buried at Gowanda in our absence. Last week, my wife and I decided to have his body removed to the family vault here at Short Hills. How did your son die, Mr. Ward? Suicide. He slashed his wrist at the sanatorium. You never saw the body? No. We couldn't get back from Europe in time. I see. See here. How do I know this whole thing isn't a plan to fleece me? How do I know that you didn't remove the body yourself? You don't. But
3: you're a rich man, Mr. Ward. And you're perfectly willing to take a chance that I'm on the level and that your son may still be alive.
7: You sound very sure of yourself, Mr. Dorothy.
3: My fee is $2,000 retainer plus expenses.
7: What sort of expenses?
3: However much it costs to take the cure at Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium. What do you say, Mr. Ward? All right, Dorothy. My secretary will send you a check in the morning. Good. Oh, uh, one other thing. What's that? I want a photograph of your son, a good one.
7: I think that can be arranged. Look here, Dorothy. If I cooperate, how do I know that you won't run off?
3: I won't guarantee it. On the other hand, I might have to get myself killed on this job. We both take a risk, Mr. Ward. Mr. Grimshaw's sanatorium was just outside Gowanda, and it was strictly for the 400 at $60 a day. Most of the cases were nervous breakdowns and alcoholics. I committed myself as a dipso and just to make it convincing I stopped at five or six bars on the way over. I was interviewed by Grimshaw himself. A small man with a fringe of white hair. He seemed on the level. And yet There was something just the slightest bit phony about the whole deal. You uh, understand, Mr. Doherty. Uh, That's not my real name, of course. Uh, Social reasons. Mm. We understand. Our paid clientele is very select. Our rates are rather high. you will be paid in cash and in advance, Dr. Grimshaw. You'll find us most sympathetic. (laughs) Um, How long does a cure usually take, Doctor? That, of course, depends on the degree of alcoholism. This is my assistant, Dr. Boyneau. How do you do? How do you do? We are accepting Mr. Doherty's patient. We better place him in the ward with Mr. K and Mr. Crakey. Mr. K is a long-term patient, Mr. Doherty, Highly intelligent man, formerly a professor of plant pathology. Mr. Crakey suffers mild delusions. I think you'll find him rather amusing. Oh! After about three days, my roommates, Arthur Kay and Craigie, got used to me and we even began to play three-handed bridge. Kay was a chronic dope addict, an intelligent, sensitive man. Craigie was nothing but a clown. He kept a big black cat named The Professor, which he talked to as if it were human.
8: And so I said to her, my dear Countess, if you don't like the company of my cat, then you don't like me. She looked at me as if I were insane, but of course the joke was on her because I was. <laughs> eh, hey, Professor?
3: You'll have to forgive Count Crakey, Mr. Doherty. When you've been here as long as I have, you'll get used to him.
8: Do you like cats, Mr. Doherty? I do hope you like cats since we are to have adjoining rooms. The Professor is very sociable and excellent company. Except when he kills birds and deposits them in your bed...
3: He's nothing but a feline murderer, as far as I'm concerned.
5: Ah, see,
3: you have insulted him. <laughs> Come here, Professor, let's make friends. Uh, how about giving me your paw? <laughs> hey, scratch me, you black devil. You insulted him, you hurt his feelings. Well, keep him away from me.
8: It will be a pleasure. I would advise you not to insult him again. Count Craky is not altogether without influence here, as Mr. Cable informed you. Good afternoon Good evening.
9: <laughs>
3: Is he always as nuts as that? Ever since I've been here. Why did they let him keep that black Satan? I don't know. I suppose Grimshaw wants to pamper him. He's been here since they opened the place, I understand. Spends about three hours a day getting therapy from Grimshaw. What's his problem? Manic depressive. A little paranoid, too. Mm -hmm. How long have you been here, Arthur? Grimshaw's two years. I left for a while, but I couldn't stay away from the junk, so I committed myself again. Did you uh, happen to know a patient here named Harlan Ward? Why do you ask that? Do you know him? I met met him socially a few times. Uh, I understand he died here. So the newspapers said. I wouldn't know. Suicide, wasn't it? Was it? You're being pretty careful, aren't you? Mr. Doherty, what would you say if I were to tell you that I don't believe Harlan Ward is dead? What makes you so certain? Alan Ward used to share this room with us. He slept in the same bed you now use. I see. He was an alcoholic. Doing quite well, too, from what I could observe. We all expected him to go home soon. Then one evening he had a violent fight with Craigie. Craigie accused him of snooping or something. Later that night, Grimshaw and Boyner took him out. Where? They take all the special treatment cases to the charity clinic. It's that small building on the other side of the stone wall. I think they do their surgery cases there. Why did they take him there? I don't know. Confinement, I guess. A few days later, we read about his death. Suicide, they said. Why do you think he's still alive, Arthur? This. About a month ago, I was in the garden next to the wall that separates us from the charity clinic. Suddenly, I thought I heard a sound like a child whimpering. It stopped. A moment later, this note came over the wall, wrapped around a stone. Then I'm certain I heard a blow and a scream again like a child. What does the note say? Help me, for God's sake, Harlan Ward. I haven't told anyone yet for fear Grimshaw and Voyner might find out. It might just be some insane prank by one of the charity cases. And yet, why should Dr. Grimshaw want to pretend Harlan Ward is dead? I'm not an oracle, Mr. Doherty. What about this charity clinic? I've always been curious. Grimshaw and Voyner make sure that no patient goes there unsupervised. Many of those who have been taken across like and Ward. I've never seen again. Arthur, how'd you like to have some fun? Like what? Like sneaking out tonight and going over the wall. What do you say? It'd break the monotony a little? I don't know. If there's something fishy going on, it'd be better to find out now, wouldn't it? I suppose there's no real harm in it? Of course not. I'd go alone, but I'll need help scaling that wall. Will you do it? All right. I'll go with you. <phone rings> shortly after midnight when Kay and I slipped out of the room and made our way out to the garden. Count Crakey was snoring soundly when we left. The wall was about eight feet high, but we made it without too much trouble. Hunt, All clear. Give me your hand and I'll let you... Now, be careful when you drop. Ready? Go ahead. There's a charity building over there. One of the lights in the basement window. Come on. We'll make a run across the driveway and hide in that clump of bushes alongside the building. Ready? All right. Hey, hold it. Drop flat. What's the matter? Let's crawl over toward the window with the light. Maybe we can see something. I suppose you've got this. To... Yes. Listen. Take it easy. Sounds like Grimshaw. Much. Sure. Let's get closer. are take it Can you make out what he's saying? Very long. No, uh, Good, Lord. Good Lord. What was that? Probably some patient having a DT's. I think it came from that basement window. Let's get over there where I can have a look. Come on. Easy. Right. Wouldn't what would I do to get caught now? Just see, see anything? Relax. It's some relax. sort of laboratory. That's right. I can see Grimshaw, Boiner, yes. and someone else Come with on. its back toward me. If we're still, we may make out what they're saying. Take it quietly. It will be easier. I warn you. Please, please. It will all be over soon. You won't remember anything. No, I don't want to go. Boyner, give it to him.
10: No, no,
3: no. Shut him up, Boyner. Good Lord. What is it? Come on. We've got to get out of here. What did you see? What did they do to that child? Arthur, that wasn't a child. It was a midget. The smallest midget I've ever seen. Well, what were they doing? Trying to give it some sort of injection. When it resisted, and knocked it out. Well, what did you suppose they were doing to it? I don't know, Arthur. All I know is that when it fell, it had the face of Harlan Ward. The way back to our room, my brain was working like a pinball machine, only the score wouldn't add up. The, the pieces were there all right. A crazy old doctor, a brutal assistant, a private sanatorium, and a, a midget with a dead man's face. I couldn't figure it out. I thought that when I got back to our room, I'd have some time to think about it. But I'd forgotten about our friend, the happiness boy, Count Craigie. Ah, so I have caught you. Fine, so you've caught us. Now, how about calling back into the woodwork like a good little count? Well, where are you? Mink hunting. Arthur and I like to go mink hunting at night. Funny thing, though, the mink weren't running very good. The grunion were running like crazy, though, weren't they, Arthur? Quite crazy, Mr. Doherty. You make fun of Count Crakey. You're lying.
8: I shall report you to Dr. Voynoff. Better not,
3: if you know what's good for you. So you threaten me.
8: Me, Count Crakey, world's champion gymnast and barbell balancer. I shall scream for Help!
5: Help! help!
3: you heard him? Just knocked him What's out. What do we do now? Put him to bed. Hope that when he wakes up in the morning, he's forgotten the whole thing. And if he hasn't? They won't take him seriously anyway. I don't think Grimshaw would believe him. Besides which, he doesn't know what we actually were doing. Come on, let's get him back into bed. I went to sleep in my own room. And the next thing I felt was the sharp jab of the hypodermic needle in my left arm. I started to struggle, but it was no use. Take it. Boyner and another assistant were holding me down. Grimshaw stood over me, the empty needle still in his hand. That's it. it. (laughs) Be useless to struggle, Mr. Doherty. In a moment, your motor nerves will be completely paralyzed. What's this about, Grimshaw? I might ask the same of you. My good friend, Count Crakey, informs me you and Mr. K decided to do some snooping earlier tonight. He followed you and saw you climb the wall. Craigie's insane. That is a matter of opinion, Mr. Doherty. Craigie,
8: what is this? Perhaps my assistant, Dr. Grimshaw, would be good enough to explain. Assistant? Yes. You see, I am the actual head of the Grimshaw Sanatorium.
3: Grimshaw? Count Craigie feigns many delusions, Mr. Doherty, but in this case he's telling the truth. Count Craigie is actually Professor Ernst Hassler. Professor Hassler and I work together in the Berlin Neurological Institute before the last war. Unfortunately,
8: my political affiliations with the Third Reich were under investigation after the war by the War Crimes Commission. However, Dr. Grimshaw managed to smuggle me into this country where I masquerade as a mental patient. Thus, we are able to continue certain experiments which were interrupted by the American
3: Army. I can imagine the sort of experiments you conducted. You and your friend, Mr. Kay will discover their exact nature very shortly, Mr. Doherty. It's a magnificent opportunity to serve science. Then I passed out. And the next thing I knew, I was coming to in a different room. I guessed it was somewhere in the charity building because of the angle of the sun through the windows. They had me in a straitjacket and kept doping me until I lost count of time. I I don't know how long it kept up. I remember one day being wheeled along a corridor into an operating room and hearing the voices of Boyner, Grimshaw, and Crakey as if from a great distance.
8: Pituitrin. Pituitrin. Four cc's. Four cc's. How are the measurements? Reducing rapidly. We'll operate at once. Have Boyner start the anesthesia. All
2: right, doctor. Commence. (laughs)
3: When I came to again, I had a blinding headache, and after that wore off a horrible sensation of weakness. I began to wonder if Craigie and Grimshaw weren't doing something to drive me insane because I lost all sense of perspective. The room seemed to grow in size. I don't know how much time passed, but one day Grimshaw came into the room with a bundle in his arms, about the size of a newborn baby. The bundle was my friend, Arthur Kay. Good morning, Mr. Doherty. I've brought you a companion. I'm sure you two gentlemen will enjoy each other's company.
10: Let me out of here. Let me out. I
3: couldn't believe my eyes until Grimshaw set Arthur down on the bed beside me. It was then that I got the real shock, for I realized that what had looked like a tiny bundle in Grimshaw's arms was actually the same size that I was. Then, for the first time, I began to understand what was happening to us. Arthur Kay and I were being made into midgets. We got the full explanation next morning when the eminent Professor Hassler, alias Count Creakey, came in to gloat over us.
8: Allow me to congratulate you, gentlemen. How are you feeling?
0: You stinking
8: monster. I'm disappointed, gentlemen. Do you not feel privileged to be a part of an experiment that will place me at the very top rank of the world's endocrinologists?
0: What are you doing to us?
8: It has been long established, gentlemen, that dwarfism and giantism result from injury to or malfunction of the pituitary and thyroid glands. The interlock between these glands was thought to be a hormone. I have discovered that this was incorrect. It is an enzyme, an enzyme I isolated some years ago. I was well on the way to synthesis in Germany when the surrender interrupted me. The interruption also limited the number and type of subjects on whom I could experiment. I was forced to find others. Such as Harlan Ward? Mr. Ward was only a control experiment. And now you've done the same to us? No, gentlemen. For you, I have reserved a special privilege. You, gentlemen, will be the first to test the full effects of the enzyme. In short, I intend that you, Mr. Kay, and you, Mr. Doherty, when the experiment is completed, will emerge as perfectly healthy, normal individuals. Except, of course, that you will be... Only five inches
3: tall. The days and nights that followed were a living nightmare. A nightmare from which Arthur and I awoke for brief periods to find ourselves in a strange new world. A huge, frightening world where everything was enlarged a hundred times. When we finally emerged, we found ourselves imprisoned in a tiny mouse cage. Judging by the relative size of things, we could not have been more than five inches tall. Now that our senses cleared, we realized that the experiment was at an end. That from now on, it was either escape or be destroyed. Another moment. I think I'll have this lock worked loose. And if we escape, then what? We'll worry about that after we get out of this mouse cage. Suppose we don't make it. At least you've written the story on that scrap of paper. Someone may find it and read it. Nobody will believe it. Why'd you bother to write it? I don't know. I suppose I want the world to know what happened to me. That does it help me push the door open? <laughs> now what. First job's getting down to the floor. I think we can make it by sliding down the telephone cord. Are you game? Go ahead, I'm right behind you. Easy now. Look out. That does it. Now if we can figure out a way to get out of the room, that should be. Oh, oh listen, somebody's coming. It must be Creakey. We've got to hide near the grate in the fireplace. They'll kill us. If
8: for feeding. I trust that you... So, you have managed to break out. It won't do, you know. There is no way you could have gotten out of the room with the door and window locked. I know you're in here. I would advise you to save yourselves trouble and give up. No? Perhaps you are in the desk drawer. Or behind this decanter? Then perhaps in this cabinet? Very well. I shall count to five. One, two, three, four, five. You will look get up, eh? Very well, my tiny friends. If you prefer to play the game of cat and mouse, then I shall be happy to furnish
5: the pack. How long do you figure it'll
3: take him to get downstairs and let the cat into the building? Three minutes at most, and we've got three minutes to get out. How? All the doors in a mental institution lock from the outside. we need a special key to get out, and then we couldn't reach the lock. I don't know, there must be... Wait a minute, what is it? John, what... You see that thin strand of wire running along the molding? What about it? Do you know what it is? No. It's the automatic fire alarm. What about it? When the alarm is tripped by a fire, all the locks are sprung so the patients can escape in their rooms. Are you certain? Positive. This door is part of the system. If I can work the insulation off that wire and short it before Crakey lets the cat of the building, let's go. Here's a tiny sliver of steel from the cage on the floor. I'll work with that. You keep an ear to the door. Go ahead. Oh, this insulation is tough as rawhide. How much time is it? Not much. And I stuff here. Let me help. What was that? What? I I thought I heard a door slam. Frankie couldn't be back so soon. Hurry up, either, for God's sake. away. I'm gonna short it. Ready? Okay. There goes the door. Come on, we'll make a run for it down the hall. If we can get to the garden, we've got a chance. I smell smoke. The short may have actually started a fire. Come on. Wait a minute. What's up? I have to go back. The the manuscript. Don't be a fool. There's no time. Come on. You go ahead. I'll catch up. Hurry up. I'll wait in the hall. Only a second.
2: found in a fountain pen cover in the burned-out hallway of Grimshaw's sanatorium. There is nothing to add, except that the fire which destroyed the sanatorium and killed so many of its occupants, including Dr. Grimshaw and Dr. Voyner, was definitely of incendiary origin. It is believed by the fire chief that some small creature, either a mouse or possibly a cat, chewed the insulation off the wire and short-circuited the system. The two patients... John Doherty and Arthur Kay vanished completely after the fire, and their remains were never found. Whether the manuscript which you have just heard is authentic, or whether it was the work of one of the more demented inmates of the sanatorium, we leave to your judgment.
3: i have just heard another adventure into the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension X.
2: Next week on Dimension X... And the moon be still as bright. The story of the first despoilers of the planet Mars the men from Earth.
3: Tonight, Dimension X has transcribed Dr. Grimshaw's Sanatorium, adapted for radio by George Lefferts from an original short story by Fletcher Pratt. Featured in the cast were Carl Weber as John Doherty and Roger DeKoven as Arthur Kaye. Your narrator was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman. Engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is directed by Edward King.
1: Stay tuned for The Bickersons next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for The Bickersons and a show that was first aired in 1947 Blanche's Stomach Pains. From Hollywood, it's dream time.
9: can get a great new improved dream, the shampoo of lovely stars in Hollywood, the new miracle shampoo that lets your hair shine like the
10: stars.
9: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of the new improved dream shampoo are pleased to present the dream show, produced by Carlton Alsop, and starring Don Amici, let me sleep, will you please, Blanche, Danny Thomas, it's a
11: free country, I'm a citizen, (laughs) and Francis Langford singing...
10: Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm blue, my disposition depends on you, I never mind the rain from the sky, if I can find the sun in your eyes, sometimes I love you, sometimes I hate you. Because I love you. That's how I am. So, what can I do?
9: from Hollywood, thrilling beauty news about the greatest shampoo improvement in years. And here is your host for the evening, Don Amici.
5: Thank you,
9: ladies and gentlemen, and good evening. Hello, Francis. Sorry I wasn't home when you dropped by this morning.
12: I wanted to talk to you about Danny. I'm worried about him. You remember when he said I was his favorite girl last week? Yes. Well, he means it. Now he thinks I'm the sweetest and noblest creature that ever walked on Earth.
9: Well, when did you discover this?
12: This morning. It was written all over my front sidewalk, and it took me half the day to scrub it off.
9: Well, don't worry. Boys often become deeply infatuated with someone beyond their reach.
12: Well, frankly, I'm, I'm very fond of Danny, but...
9: Hello, everybody. You leave for a second, Francis, and I'll have a talk with him. Well, if it isn't Danny Thomas!
11: Don, Don, have you ever noticed how the leaves on the trees nestle on each other's arms? Now how the honeybees stop at each fading flower, and how the blossoms dip their petals in sweet surrender?
9: Well, it sounds like you've got yourself a girl.
11: Yeah. Did you notice the difference it makes? You know, Don, I even comb my hair in the back now where it doesn't show. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's
9: Francis, isn't it?
11: Don, gentlemen of breeding do not bandy a L.A. lady's name
9: about I wasn't bandying. I was just saying it was Frances.
11: Frances. I'll never forget the first time I saw her. I said to myself, there is a woman.
9: (laughs) Now, that's a shrewd observation.
11: (laughs) I'm in love with her. You in love? Let's face it, Don. There comes a time in every boy's life when his Lone Ranger badge becomes unimportant.
5: (laughs) You've been
11: thinking a lot about girls lately, Danny. There are other things more important. Where do you
9: think President Truman would be if he thought about girls all the time?
11: At the YWCA. What else?
5: (laughs) But really, Don, (laughs) Frances is
11: different from other girls. For her, I'd swim the deepest mountain. I'd climb the highest river. Why, I'd even cross Hollywood and Vine in a pedestrian zone.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous, brother. Then you
11: plan to marry her, I assume. Yes, and if we are married, who knows? Someday we may even be man and wife. (laughs)
5: Danny, you're
9: making a serious institution sound farcical You don't deserve to be married What have you got to offer, Frances? You realize how accomplished she is? She can sing,
11: dance, swim, ride, pilot a plane Oh, we'll get along fine, I'm a great cook
12: (laughs) Hello, Don Hi, Danny
11: Hello, Frances You're just the person I want to see here I have a present for you
12: Oh, thank you What is it?
11: Chocolate-covered radishes
10: (laughs) (laughs) Just what I've always wanted
11: Danny,
9: I don't see how any girl could be romantic about you.
11: Why? Fellas like me don't grow on trees.
9: If they did, I'd be in favor of reforestation.
5: <laughs>
9: Frankly, I don't
11: think you know
5: what
9: love is. You just have spring fever. Now,
11: how do you know?
9: Oh, the symptoms are obvious. Instead of dreaming about girls, you ought to spend your excess energy in something more suitable for you. Play with your chemistry set. Yeah, but... Go out and kick a football, then run around the block six times. When you're all finished, go home and take a good dose of sulfur and molasses. That's my prescription for you. Come hey, on, you Francis, it. I'll buy you a soda.
11: Oh, wait a minute, Francis, don't.
5: Hey, wait a minute.
11: <laughs> oh, that big shot of Michi. He kills me, you know. He thinks he's a doctor right away. He's diagnosed.
5: He's diagnosed
11: my case. tells me I have spring fever. Oh, that guy, you don't know what love is, he says to me. I should have said, I do, too. It's a tenth word in a telegram, I should have said.
5: <laughs> Tries to insinuate
11: that Francis wouldn't marry me. I should have said, listen, Don, I could marry any girl I please. Trouble is, I never please any of them.
5: <laughs> Why? Well,
11: he uh, tells me about symptoms. I have spring fever. I've got the spring fever, and he walks off with Francis. I don't get it. It's not too slick for me. His tongue may be as sharp as a razor's edge, but his brain has already seen the best years of his life. That's all I can <laughs> Dried sulfur and molasses. What a nerve he has trying to be a doctor. I can be my own doctor. Much better one than he is. I can be the greatest doctor in the world. Sure, why not? It's a free country. I'm a citizen. Gee, I can just see me now. Astounding the medical profession. All I need is 12 good doctor jokes and a musical bridge from Carmen Dragon. Nurse.
12: Yes, doctor.
11: Needle, please. Needle. Scissors. Scissors. Steady now. There. Done.
12: Doctor, you're wonderful.
11: Not a bad job. I don't think the fact will show unless I bend over.
10: (laughs) Doctor, you're remarkable.
11: Oh, it's nothing really compared to some of my accomplishments. Did you know that I finally succeeded in isolating the Haemophilus germ? How exciting. How did you do it? Oh, I took it to an isolated part of town and left it there. (laughs)
12: It's amazing that no one ever thought of that before.
11: Ah, that's because most doctors just look for the obvious. You take a glass of plain, ordinary milk, for instance. Do you realize the hidden properties it possesses? Hidden properties? Certainly. I've discovered that milk contains all the elements for a plastic strong enough to make automobile fenders. That's wonderful. What's so wonderful about it? Think of the poor farmer getting up four o'clock in the morning to milk a fender.
5: <laughs>
10: Are you
6: Dr. Thomas?
11: Yes, that'll be $10, please.
5: <laughs> but you...
6: You haven't diagnosed my case yet. That'll be
11: $20, and please make it brief. I'm very busy.
6: But, uh, but I... But I... I don't know whether I can speak freely with you. After all, I'm a woman.
11: Yes, I noticed that when you came in. (laughs) Shall we dance?
6: Please, Doctor, I'm under a great nervous tension. I've tried everything and nothing has helped. I've gone mountain climbing in Switzerland, swimming in hot springs, and skiing at Sun Valley. And now I've come to you as a last resort. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this isn't much of a resort, but you could
11: try sliding down the roll top Death!
6: <laughs> Please help me, Doctor. If this terrible strain keeps up, I'll, I'll find myself an old woman. Why, you look and see if you
11: can find me a young one.
5: Tell <laughs> me, madam,
11: why do you feel the need of a doctor?
6: Well, I've been suffering from hallucinations lately. I just. Uh, I keep imagining that little men are following me wherever I go. Oh, I see. You want to know how to get rid of the little men? No, I want to know how to catch
5: them. (laughs)
6: Obviously,
11: madam, you're suffering from a severe shock. Has anything frightened you lately? Well,
6: just the other night, a a burglar broke into my house. What did you do? I immediately locked all the doors and windows, but he managed to get to the phone and call the police. (laughs) Dr.
11: Thomas speaking. Yes? Hmm. Hmm. No, Mrs. Oakford, I can't leave the office. I'll have to examine your floating rib here. Wait until it's high tide and float it over.
5: <laughs> and now, madam,
11: to get back to you. I'll have to call in my assistant for consultation. Oh, uh, Dr. Amici. Yes?
5: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> You've had
11: your ear to the keyhole. How do you think we should treat this woman?
9: Well, the first thing in cases like this is to have the patient sheared and clipped. <laughs>
11: You'll have to forgive Dr. Amici. He used to work in a cat and dog hospital.
5: <laughs>
11: Amici, I've told you a hundred times we don't shear and clip the patient here.
9: Just clip them.
5: <laughs> Allow me
9: to examine her, Dr.
11: Thomas. Madam, will you please say, Ah. 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 Ah.
5: Ah. Ah. Stick
11: around, folks. You'll we'll get back to the dialogue in a minute. <laughs> I can't see a thing wrong with her. I can. She's suffering from a malaprop diversion of the upper cardiac diaphragm and the neuromuscular system. What does that mean? I don't know. The medical books are full of words.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there
11: some cure for me? I don't know. After all, I'm only a doctor. But let me tell you about a new drug I just invented. There are many mental giants who've contributed to science in ways that will last forever. But I've recently surpassed them, outmaneuvered and outclassed them in this wonderful field of endeavor.
5: Sulfanilamide.
11: Sulfatiazide. And penicillin. Have made their claim <laughs> to <at your> fame. <laughs> but I've discovered a formula that puts them all to shame. I've discovered sulfa of parapensanilamide. Doctors will adore it. It's miraculous, stupendous, it's the most amazing cure. But there is no disease for it,
5: <laughs> <laughs>
11: If you have no sulfur higher a pair run right out and buy it. And in case you've eaten poison mushrooms and you're very sick, I recommend a change of a diet.
5: If you're really ill,
11: Just take one pill, it's the only thing for you. For this miracle drug kills every bug. And you know what? Kills the patient, too. (laughs) You can see that Sosa-Hiathia-Perapensin-LMI is a faulty fixer. So the best thing, if you're ailing, is to bury yourself in work. Unless you're a concrete mixer. (laughs) Ain't that silly? But it's better than sofa high a
4: high, a pair of pants never
3: Now,
9: our lovely dream girl, Frances Langford, joins Carmen Dragon and his orchestra to sing Dancing in the Dark.
4: You love, and we can taste the music together.
9: Don Amici and Francis Langford as John and Blanche Bickerson with Danny Thomas as Brother Amos in The Honeymoon is Over, written by Phil Rapp. The Bickersons have retired. Mrs. Bickerson rises in sympathetic anguish at 2 o'clock in the morning as poor husband John, victim of contagious insomnia, or Schmoe's disease, Broadcast the telltale symptoms during the crucial stage of the dread ailment. Listen. Mm
12: Regular pattern. (laughs) Now you'll get (laughs) amused.
10: Oh, no.
12: John. John. Why aren't you laughing? John, wake up. (laughs) You should be giggling and you're crying. What's the matter with you? What's the matter? snoring like you usually do Mm -hmm. I was just getting used to your whining and giggling but now you start crying and it throws me off completely
9: what are you talking about
12: you've got to stop it John I've never been so sick in all my life and you won't let me get a minute's sleep I don't feel well
9: what hurts you Blanche
12: everything hurts me call Dr. Marvin
9: you don't need Dr. Marvin I'll take care of you tell me where it hurts
12: it's those clams we had tonight I didn't want to eat them, but you kept insisting. You kept telling me clams are healthy.
9: Well, clams are healthy. They are not. They are, too. Did you ever hear one complain? <laughs> I ate more than you did, and I feel perfectly horrible. I mean, fine. Where does it hurt you?
12: I think I'm poisoned. My whole body aches, and I've got a terrible shooting pain between my shoulder blades.
9: Well, lie still, and I'll fry you some cucumbers and hot root beer. <laughs>
12: Cucumbers and hot root beer.
9: Make a new man of you.
12: You just want to finish me off, that's all. Oh,
9: Blanche, I'm only going to make a poultice out of it. It draws out the pain. It's a new medical discovery.
12: What's the matter with an old-fashioned mustard plaster?
9: Okay, I'll you an old-fashioned mustard plaster. Where's the bourbon? <laughs>
12: bourbon? What's
9: that for? To soak the mustard plaster.
12: John Bickerson. Don't
9: worry, I'll scrape the mustard off first.
12: Where's the bottle? I'm not going to stick any bourbon soap plaster on my back.
9: You don't stick it on your back. You hold it over your mouth and squeeze it.
12: (laughs) Put on the lights. I will not. I don't want you to touch me.
9: I'll bet you're not sick at all. You just thought this pain up to keep me awake. Why don't you leave me alone?
12: I can just hear you saying that to Gloria Gooseby.
9: Why should I say that to Gloria Gooseby?
12: Why, indeed. If you were married to Gloria Gooseby, she wouldn't stand for any of your nonsense. I'm
9: not married to her, and she stands for a lot more of my nonsense than you do.
12: I mean, why do I care what she stands for? I despise Gloria Gooseby, and you know it. Then why does she keep staring at you like she's hypnotized?
9: She doesn't stare. It's just that she wears those outlandish dresses, and they bring out her eyes.
5: <laughs>
12: they bring yours out,
9: too. Now, look. Let's. let's make a pact never to mention that woman's name again as long as we live.
12: Well, I keep thinking there's something between you.
9: I swear I don't know she's alive.
12: She doesn't mean more to you than I do.
9: She means even less to me than you do.
12: I don't like the way that sounded.
9: Well, don't go looking for hidden meanings. Now, if you're really sick, I'll do anything you want to make you feel better. Now, if you feel okay, all I ask is that you let me have a few hours sleep. Now, is that fair enough?
12: No, I did have a little headache before, but now I've lost
9: it. It isn't lost. I've got it. (laughs) Every morning when I go to work, I'm bleary-eyed, and I stumble around the office in a stupor. I don't know how much longer my boss is going to stand for it.
12: Why do you stumble around, John? Well,
9: because I don't get enough sleep. I'm completely debilitated. And only last week, I failed to pass an insurance examination.
12: Was it the same examination you had before? Well, certainly. Then why didn't you copy the answers off of the old policy? It's
9: not answers they want. They give you a medical checkup. And apparently, I'm not such an ideal physical specimen.
12: I think you're wonderful. You've got the nicest legs of any man I ever saw. Thanks. In the meantime,
9: I don't think I'm... Long for this world.
12: Am I responsible for it, John? No. I am, too. I know I am. John, can I talk to you?
9: Sure. Go ahead and talk.
12: I've been thinking about how we quarrel all the time, and I'm sure we love each other as much as any other married couple, and I know they must have their little arguments, maybe more than... John! Hmm. You said I could talk to you.
9: Well, am I stopping you?
12: I want you to listen Okay. I didn't know your health was bad and I'm worried. If anything happened to you, I'd blame myself for not taking the proper precautions. So you know what I think?
9: What do you think, Blanche?
12: I think you ought to make out a will.
9: Make out a will? I thought you were worried about me.
12: Well, you don't want to leave me at the mercy of all those grasping relatives of yours, do you? The minute you drop dead, don't I... talk like this. <laughs>
9: Say, pass on or something like that?
12: Well, you always say drop
10: dead. Oh, well,
9: that's only when I'm talking to your brother
10: Amos. (laughs) You should
9: be a little more delicate when you're discussing wills. Why? Well, because you make it sound like I'm going to go any minute.
12: Well, they don't give you two weeks' notice, you know. (laughs) You just told me you couldn't get any more insurance.
9: Oh, I can get all the insurance I want.
12: I don't care. You should make out a will just the same.
9: Okay, I'll make it out tomorrow.
12: You say it, but you won't do it. Get up and do it now. What? Go on, get up and make out a will.
9: Why, you're out of your mind. In the first place, a will isn't legal unless you have two witnesses. And in the second place, I haven't got anything to leave in the first place. Unless you're thinking of that phony stock your thieving brother sold me.
12: What phony stock?
9: Those 500 shares of Kentucky Salt (laughs) Peter's. not worth the paper they're written on. Nobody's going to take anything and I don't need a will.
12: You're the most stubborn man that ever lived, John. Why?
9: Why am I stubborn?
12: It's the hardest thing in the world to make you admit I'm right when you know I'm wrong.
9: (laughs) There's the woman's logic for you. Suppose I do make out a will and nobody can touch anything except you. Okay. So now you got all my worldly goods. First thing you know, you get over your grief and... Marry a guy without a dollar to his name. Like that broken down snore specialist, Dr. Marvin.
12: Oh, I'm not going to marry anybody.
9: He'll give up his practice and he'll take you for every penny. My hard earned money. The little possessions I slave for. He'll drive my brand new car. Drink my bourbon. loaf around like a prince. John! Why don't you make
12: the bum get a job, Blank? <laughs> For heaven's sake, John, what's got into you? Well,
9: why did you start all this talk about wills?
12: Well, I'll tell you. Amos just got a job as a notary public. Amos? And he gets two dollars for every seal he puts on a will.
9: I knew he was at the bottom of it, that chiseling grapter.
12: There's nothing wrong with my brother, Amos. No. You're just jealous because he thinks up ways to make a living without working. Mm -hmm. All it takes is a little brain. Nobody's
9: got littler brains than Amos. (laughs) He's the cause of 90% of our fights.
12: Oh, go to sleep.
9: (laughs) Go to sleep, she tells me. Practically talks me into a funeral. (laughs) Gets a brother to seal my will. Keeps me up half the night with Gloria Gooseby and clams. (laughs) Now she tells me, go to sleep. (laughs) can't sleep. Never sleep another week. Hello? (laughs) Hello? The phone's dead. It's leaking.
12: Put down that bottle of bourbon. I'll get the phone. I wonder who's calling it. Oh, my leg. Lights on. The lights are on.
9: Take off my sleep shade.
12: Oh. <laughs> Hello, Len. This is Amos. What do you want, Amos? And did you talk him into it? No, and I'm not going to try anymore.
11: What are you talking about? Everybody's got to have a will. I drew mine up today. I left everything I have in the world to Jarko. John. Yeah.
12: Amos said he drew up his will today and left everything he has in the world to you.
9: Tell him I don't want her.
12: <laughs> Amos John says he's very pleased. Fine, and
11: you know, one good thing deserves
12: another. Sure, I'll talk to him tomorrow. very important
11: to have a will, Blanche. There's a big case going on right now, and all the relatives are fighting over the door because a rich old lady didn't file a will. Really? Yeah, she had $100,000 in cash and hid it in the bustle of her wedding dress. Hey, tell Jarko. John? Yeah?
12: An old lady died, and they found $100,000 in her bustle.
11: That's
9: a lot of money to leave behind. <laughs>
12: He
5: says
11: that's Never a lot... Never mind. I heard him. <laughs> I'll bring my notary seal around
12: tomorrow, Blanche. You better wait till I call you. Good night, Amos. Oh, mm. dear. Mm. John. John. Mm. I've got that shooting pain between my shoulder blades again.
9: Oh, let's have a look.
12: Right here. It must be arthritis or a neuralgia. It sticks me like a knife. What is it, John?
9: It's the price tag on your nightgown.
12: <laughs> here. No wonder my back was hurting.
9: Holy smokes! $48.50. Is that what that nightgown
12: cost? <laughs> yes, I just bought it this morning. Oh! What's the matter, John?
9: Now my back is hurting. <laughs> Good
5: night, Blanche. <laughs>
9: This is Don Amici wishing you good days, good nights, and good luck until we meet again. Remember this beauty tip from Hollywood stars. For hair that shines like the stars, use the great new improved green shampoo. It means lovelier hair for Hollywood stars and lovelier hair for you. Listen next Sunday for another pleasant half hour with Don Amici, Danny Thomas, Francis Langford, Carmen Dragon and his orchestra, and yours truly, Toby Reed. This is
8: NBC, the national broadcasting company.
1: Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Box 13, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Nimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.